Okay. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back. For those of you who are visiting, um, my name is J.D. Partain, pastor at Echo Church, and I've been on vacation, like for reals. And uh, it was really difficult, really difficult. I would... um, I'm, I take after my father, who's an early riser, and so I would get up early and wouldn't have much to do, you know, so <laughs> grab the laptop and open it up and start checking emails. Big mistake, right? Just kind of sucks you in, and then someone like my beautiful wife would have to bring me back to earth and be like, what are you doing? <laughs> You're on vacation. And they'd have to pull me away from that. But it's only because I love the work here so much, and I just want you to know I really did miss Echo quite a bit. Our vacation took us all the way down to Texas. We got to see grandparents, which, I mean, my kids' great-grandparents. And so we had a lot to do. We went to a lot of different places. Usually when I take kids across country on a trip to Impact, we see all these different places, and my family's kind of like, well, when are we going to get to go? This was that time. And so we went to a lot of the same places. It was really exciting. But I also feel kind of behind a little bit. And so I'm going to really jump into things real quick, and we're going to speed through really quite a few pages of notes uh, because we have a guest speaker today. It's uh, my good friend Don Evans, and he's going to speak to us, and I'm super excited about what he's going to say. But to get to that point where we're going to bring him up on the stage, I want to do a real quick review. We have been in the longest series I have ever preached in my life, Um, and that sounds very daunting, but uh, I got to tell you, I have thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, I don't know if preachers are allowed to enjoy their own stuff, but really, it's all from God anyway, and the idea that we're going to have a series that revolves around Jesus that started in January, leading all the way up to Easter, I mean, this is our our last couple of weeks. There's a part of me that has a little bit of heartbreak because I'm thinking, ah, this has been so enjoyable. You know, I I know what we're going to be talking about next, but talking about Jesus has turned into uh, one of my favorite things. The other thing I want to say is this. I'm very proud of this church. You guys have been reading your Bibles. Uh, Can I say that? (laughs) It's like, of course you're reading your Bibles. But no, we have an app, right? The Bible app. And we said, all right, everybody get on this particular app and you're going to follow the plan, which is called the Harmony of the Gospels in 30 Days. We have quite a few of you who are doing just that. If you're not, I encourage you to start. You don't have to start at the very beginning. I'll even give you that. In fact, if I were you, I would start on what would be Friday of this past week. Um, it would be John chapter 9. Start there, right? And continue to read with, with, the rest of, with the rest of the church. It's been fascinating because you read through all of these selected passages, and then you're allowed to leave comments at the end. And uh, it's been fun to read other people's comments, and it's been fun to just sort of be reminded. My particular app on my phone, it'll even read it to you. You don't even have to use your eyes to read words. It'll speak it into your ears. So I encourage you, take advantage of that. It's called The Harmony of the Gospels in 30 Days. The whole theory behind it was this. We're leading up to Easter. The series is called Knowing Jesus. You can listen to the preacher guy up on the stage, or you can dive into the word yourself. I recommend both. And that's what we're doing. So just to uh, give you an idea of how I started this entire series, um, I, I, I told you I, when I was in high school, I took, away, um, I took a course in communication. I had no idea that I was going to be a public speaker at all, but I uh, took a course in communication, and the very first week, he said, don't worry, you're not going to stand up on a stage because you have to first become a good listener. And I thought that was 
kind of earth-shaking. I was like, and a little bit relieved, you know, it's like, okay, good. But you become a good listener, and the whole idea of the communication process is this, is that you have a sender who has a particular message, perhaps in their mind, and they are going to send that message through a particular channel. And in that channel, there's all this noise that bombards it, right, before it reaches the receiver. Hopefully, it's as pure as possible. That way, the receiver can get the exact same message as what the sender was trying to receive. It's very rare that it's going to be 100% accurate. But then he'll send feedback. Or she will send feedback, right? And so there's this communication process. Happens all the time. It's happening right now. I'm sending out messages. You're receiving them. You're actually sending me back feedback right now. Because some of you are like, you know, that kind of thing, right? It's sending a message. All right. What would that look like if we were trying to get to know Jesus? You see, there are other parts of the communication process that we have to think about. One of them is, is I have a worldview. In other words, I see the world a particular way through the history that I have, the way in which I was raised, the things that I read, the education that I have, all of that kind of stuff creates a worldview. And I send my message into somebody else's worldview. And they interpret things very differently just because of the way they were raised up and all the education that they have and all the other things that create their worldview. And my theory is this, is that the closer we get to each other and allow our worldviews to sort of collide with each other, right, the more easy it will be to communicate. The more clear the communication. The less noise in the channel of the communication. But what if we were to do that with Jesus? What is he, what is he communicating to us that we need to hear? And how would we grow closer in terms of our worldview to his worldview? Well, obviously, you have to open up the word of God, right? And I'm, I'm skipping through a lot of this. I, we had a whole sermon series on this. And so the idea was this. Would it be possible for us to immerse ourselves into his worldview so that we can know Jesus? Because knowing Jesus is a very big phrase. So week after week, we've been looking at all sorts of different aspects of what it means to, first of all, understand the Word of God. Uh, we talked about the four Gospels. We talked about the writers of the four Gospels. We talked about the political climate that was happening at that time. We talked about the old law. In other words, Jesus is coming right at this point where the old law has been established for a couple thousand years, right? And so we talked about that. We talked about the nature of who Jesus was. He's both God and man. He's no less God and he's no less man, right? Well, that's weird. What does that mean? And so we talked about what the collision of those two natures might be. We talked about the fact that he was tempted, which is kind of strange to think about. And I gave you a, a phrase in that particular lesson. I said, listen, sin is not abstract. Huge takeaway. Seriously, it's not abstract. It's very specific to you. It's, it's tailor-made for who you are, just as it was for Jesus. And we read the temptations of Jesus, and sometimes we don't understand them fully. Or maybe we can't exactly know, okay, what was it that he was actually feeling at this particular time? That's because the temptation was for him. And we read about it in a particular way as best we can to understand it. But the takeaway on that is, guess what? The things that someone else struggles with, you can't stand in judgment of. Because you're not that person. And that sin wasn't made for you. It was made for them. So how do we find empathy? Can we understand Jesus a little bit more by having that same kind of empathy for somebody else? Then we talked about parables. We talked about these simple stories. They're little children's stories, right? Parables are brilliant. Tiny little stories, but guess what? If your heart wasn't right, 
If your heart was stone, was, you know, if it was hardened, you'd miss it. You'd miss the, the meaning completely. A story that a child could understand, but the meaning that you would miss. Unless your heart was right, unless your heart was tender, you know, then the meaning would be actually quite deep. And it was really brilliant. And so we would talk about those, those as well. And then we also talked about miracles. The last lesson that I gave had to do with the miracles of Jesus and the fact that the miracles identified Jesus as this long-awaited Messiah, but they also revealed the character of Jesus. In other words, you could see some of the things that were important to him, the values that he had through the miracles that he would perform. But there was something else about the miracles that we also talked about, and I touched on it, and we're going to continue with that thought today. Have you ever been standing on the backside of someone who's taking a picture in a dark room, and they set the flash, and so you're not facing this particular camera, you're behind it, but as soon as the flash goes off, the whole room is illuminated for a split second, right? And sometimes it's so bright, everyone's like, what's their reaction? Ah, you know, that kind of thing, right? But for a split second, everything is clear. For a split second. And of course, the camera captures that split second. That's why there's a flash on there in the, in the first place, right? These were his miracles. Jesus was showing the world what it ought to look like. See, the, the problem is this, is that we think this is normal. Folks, this isn't normal. We, we think that we're living in a world right now, and so when the people see a miracle, they're like, wow, that's extraordinary. No, no, you got it backwards. When God created the world, there was no sin in it. It was perfect. And the world that we are eventually heading to, it's also filled with its perfection. It's this world right now that's cursed, and the darkness sits inside. And when the light flashes, we think it's extraordinary, but no, it's just a glimpse of the, how things ought to be. So today what I want to do is this. I want us to look at the people that he would connect with. Now there's quite a few, so we're not going to go through all of these people. I'm just going to list them out loud really quick. Obviously you have the Pharisees, and it's really fun to see what happens when Jesus collides with the Pharisees, all right? I would love to dwell on that particular uh, lesson. That is not today's lesson. He also was surrounded by these people that would follow him. What were they called? Disciples, yes. So we would have these disciples, essentially just followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, to some level, they committed themselves to following him. And it's really bizarre how he would even collect them. He would, he would go to a shore and he would be like, hey, you two out there fishing, come with me. And they would drop their nets and come. I mean, that was, you know, it's pretty, pretty sweet. And so he would have this collection of these disciples. And man, they were a mess. And I would love to give that lesson as well, but that's not today's lesson. He would also connect with his own family. Oh, man. <laughs> Talk about rough family reunions, all right? Jesus' Jesus's family didn't exactly, you know, treat him well, especially when they began to realize, ah, you know, something's up with Jesus. <laughs> he's a little different than the rest of us, right? Maybe he's the Messiah. That couldn't be the case, you know? We've known this kid all his life. So we see how he collides with his family, and it's interesting to see how that dynamic works out. And I would love to have that lesson as well. We don't have time for it, and that's not today's lesson. No, today what we're talking about are two different groups of people. And the first one is this. It is the people that, well, let me just say this. 
There's another group of people that we could put in a broad category that we will call the marginalized. Now, when I say marginalized, what does that mean exactly? So if you look up a definition, you know, as an adjective, it would simply mean this, that there is this particular person or a group of people who have been treated as insignificant, or another word would be peripheral. As a verb, it would, it would be that you would relegate these people to an unimportant or a powerless position place in society or in a particular group. In other words, these people aren't necessarily exalted in any way. And so what we do is we move them to the side. We move them to the margins. And so when I talk about the people on the margins, I'm talking about this ragtag group of people. Well, in Jesus' day, who are we talking about? Believe it or not, I would put women in general in that category. At least in this particular culture, 2,000 years ago, at this particular place, Women would be very much marginalized. I would put children in this particular category. Children would also be kind of, you know, moved to the side, you know, not quite as important as the rest of the, uh, the adults, at least not yet anyway. And so they would also find themselves marginalized. You would look at the poor. Those that didn't have much money, they would also find themselves marginalized. And then those who would have some type of handicap, so they would be blind, they would be lame, they would have leprosy, that type of thing, they would also find themselves marginalized. Today, oh, and I would also say that the tax collectors, believe it or not. So tax collectors are in an interesting category because they're actually rich. I mean, if you're a good tax collector, you're going to be quite wealthy. But they were hated, and so they were rejected because they kind of were in cahoots with Rome. And I explained some of that earlier when we talked about the political uh, climate of the day. And so they also become sort of marginalized. But today I want to talk about the fact that Jesus would address each of those categories that I talked about, starting with children. All right? Where do we read about children? Well, you'll find it in Matthew chapter 18, and I'll blast through this real quick. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, and they said, hey, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's kind of a legitimate question. And he called the child to himself and set him before him. And many commentators say that, well, the child was probably about four years old. Now, I don't know how they figured that out, <laughs> right? Um, I think they get some clues. I had one commentator that said, well, we know that the kid can at least walk, right? <laughs> so the, the kid walks up, and then Jesus sets him. Like, you know, I have a 17-year-old, and I think I'm a strong guy, but I don't think I could literally set him before everybody. But that's the picture that you have. He's like, he sets him right there. And this is what he says. He says, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine the reaction that they might have had? He said, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And he even goes so far as to say these words. He said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be thrown into the sea and drowned. I, in my, in my uh, old Bible, I see all these notes and everything, you know, that I've written years before. And on this one, it has the word, dang. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, Jesus is being serious. He's like, you know, that's... that's what should happen to somebody who is going to treat a child this way? He would later comment, he would say, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven are continually seeing the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now that's fascinating, because that's where we get this idea of guardian angels. 
I always thought guardian angels was sort of a Catholic or, you know, some other type of a religious type of thing until my father one day gave a sermon on this, uh, this particular topic. And you'll find it actually throughout the Bible in Hebrews and Psalms, this idea that there are these guardian angels and he puts his strongest angels as those particular guardian angels around them. He even talks about the 90, here's one of his parables, he said, what do you think, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. And then he says in verse 14, so it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, he still has the kid in front of him, that one of these little ones should perish. You'll also find uh, quite a bit of, of uh, reference to them also in, in Mark chapter 10, and, and, and the bottom line is this. There is such a strong value in how Jesus uses this child to demonstrate not only the qualities of the kingdom, but the qualities of those who are longing to be in the kingdom. And my question to you is this. How does that translate to us as a church? In other words, how do we view our kids? How do we view our youth? So I'm going to tell you this real quick. I have an apology to make. I don't think, I know myself personally, I don't think I have ever really taken the idea of children's ministry seriously. Now when I say children's ministry, what I'm talking about are little ones who can barely walk all the way up to, I don't know, middle school age. I was a youth minister, so it's almost like, to me, the real work starts when they go into the sixth grade. Uh, no offense. Uh, you know, but, but honestly, think about the example that we're being given at this moment. Think about the fact that we have kids that are in an environment that is so drastically different than the one that you grew up. If you are 20 years old or more, I'm telling you right now, that environment that they have is so drastically different, and it continues to change day by day. We've talked about the ideas of uh, what it means to have too much screen time, what it means to be absorbed with this pandemic across the globe of internet pornography and the things that you're watching. Our kids are very susceptible to all of that. Why have we not had a stronger emphasis on children's ministry? Why have we not considered the fact that if Jesus is saying that this type of innocence is the thing that we should value, we also ought to preserve it. So moving forward, here's the big announcement. We are having a much more intentional children's ministry. In fact, uh, I've been, you know, looking for, okay, who, who could be a, a children's director? And Peggy Stewart stepped up to the plate. And she's not here for me to embarrass her, unfortunately. But she was really, really sweet about it because she actually turned me down at first. She said, no, I, I don't know if I have a passion for that. And then she came back later and she said, actually, there's a need, isn't there? And I said, yes, there is. And she said, okay, well, I'll give it a shot. And I think giving it a shot has now turned into a passion because she is flying with this. And so I just, wanna, and I, I just want you to know right now, we are going to up our game when it comes to the children's ministry. Now, I tip my hat to those of you who have already been teaching our kids. I don't want to say that that hasn't been a source of value. It has. But I've talked with my wife many times, and she's like, we're kind of in survival mode at this time. What would it mean for a church to embrace children's ministry? Well, for one thing, it would mean that our church as a whole would be willing to volunteer to be teachers of the children's ministry, right? You can see where this is going. And some of you are like, oh, no, right? Uh, 
Hey, listen, listen. If we were just babysitting kids, I'd be right there with you. But that is not what we are doing moving forward. If what we are doing is preserving the very elements that Jesus is referring to with his disciples, then that means we are going to have an organized and very powerful curriculum. It means that we're going to have teachers who are not back there by themselves, but rather they're going to have two teachers back there working side by side. It also means that the director who is overseeing all of this is willing to fill in all the needs that you might have if you're going to take that responsibility on. It also means that as a church plant here, I hope we can get excited about the idea of rotating ourselves into that type of an effort back there. Now listen, we're looking at a new building, right? I, 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 every week I'm like, oh, Lord, please let me explain what's happening. That's, that day is coming soon. But I think many of you already know, we're looking at, an, at a new building. And my hope is that when we get to this new building, that it is conducive to a strong children's ministry, period. Like it's a deal breaker if it doesn't work. Does that make sense? So here's what I want. I just want to throw this out to you. We need teachers. And like I said, we're looking uh, to have two teachers for every Sunday. We're also going to have a teenage or uh, a youth helper in there as well. Uh, we have class curriculum that is going to be online. It already is in the works. Uh, my mother, uh, Angelinda, and I don't mean to embarrass them, but they're back. And they are the craft team extravaganza. Sorry. I didn't. Anyway, I'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> We also are going to have a check-in process. When visitors come, they kind of want to know where their kids are, you know. And so we have a check-in process. And then we also have other uh, elements such as security. That's something that we're looking at for our church as a, as, as a whole. Listen, if we're reaching into the people on the margins, we also have to be smart. And so we want to have an environment that is safe. And so we're looking for people who can volunteer uh, for the security side of things. And then also, I talked with Eric Strandvold earlier today about this. We're looking for um, a setup crew. Uh, in other words, the, the more we could take off of the plate of the teachers who are stepping up to volunteer, the better. And so if we have a setup crew that can set up the classroom and make it the way that it needs to be, that would be fantastic. So I'm going to be approaching many of you, but if you're already feeling inclined to step forward and be proactive, please see me or please see Olivia. Raise your hand, Olivia, way up in the air like that. Just go see Olivia, and when Peggy comes back, just bombard her, okay? <laughs> She'll be so, so excited. Anyway. Also, just so you know, we have an orientation for all volunteers who are interested in being in the children's ministry. That's going to be on April 28th. It'll be right after services. We will provide lunch. It'll be about an hour and a half. We'll try to get it done quickly. We're going to show you Planning Center, which is the central hub of how we are organizing everything in the church. Olivia will probably be leading that as well and just kind of getting you familiar. We just want you to know we're taking the responsibility seriously. Okay, number two, the other people that are marginalized that Jesus would connect with. In my notes, I put defective. That is not at all politically correct. In fact, it's downright offensive, right? But it's fascinating to me because that's how they were treated in Jesus' time. And when we talk about people who were defective or people who had blemish, we're talking about those who couldn't walk. We're talking about those who couldn't see. We're talking about those who had leprosy or any type of ailment. And the Pharisees were always following Jesus. They wanted to see who he would hang out with. He would hang out with those people. He would connect with those particular people. And I see at least um, several reasons why we need to examine that. 
We have all sorts of different stories where Jesus would heal a paralyzed man, right? Or give someone who didn't have his sight. Uh, he would help him to see, just as in John chapter 9, which is where I want you to open your Bibles right now. But the problem is this, is that in Jesus' day, when people would see somebody who had these type of defects, defects, right, they not only would put them in the category of being defective, it would be even worse than that. They would point at them and they would say what? Sinner, right? Sinner. In other words, you're sinful, that's why you are the way that you are. Or your parents were sinful, which is why you are the way that you are. You know, insult to injury, but even more than that, they're taking it to a spiritual lesson. There are uh, a couple of reasons why this would be the case. Uh, there are several places in the Old Testament that they would be very much familiar with, like Psalm 51, verse 5, where David would write the words, For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. And so they would take that type of scripture and then they would blow it up and, and, and add on to it the fact that, hey, you're obviously sinful, or your mother, your parents were sinful. Also, it's, it's fascinating that um, even though we have the book of Job, which if you read the book of Job, you'll find Job has these friends, including his wife, that have made the same assumption. They're like, Job, you are going through all these difficulties because that's what would happen with Job. He would go through all these difficulties. He would be sick. He would lose all sorts of uh, loved ones and property, the rest of it. And they would say, well, you obviously are a sinner. But the, the thing about it is that towards the end, God makes it clear that is not the case, that God is sovereign and he is in control. And it's not necessarily because of what you have done, the results of what you have done that has led to why you are experiencing what you experience. It's not sin necessarily. And they would have this, but it would make no difference. Also in Leviticus, and this is important, in Leviticus chapter 21, we read these words. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron, saying, no man of your offspring, in other words, the sons of Aaron, he's referring to the priests, no man of your offspring, the priests, throughout their generations, who has a defect, some translations say blemish, which is where you would get this word defect, shall approach to offer the food of his God. What is he talking about? He's basically laying down the rules that if you are a priest, you are, a, you are responsible for the different aspects of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, doing sacrifices for the people, you were not allowed to have any type of defect. He would go on to say, for no one who has a defect shall approach a blind man, a lame man, someone who has a disfigured face, a deformed limb, or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or, forgive me, tr crushed testicles, whatever that means. You know, it, these are the kinds of things that he was saying. If you have that defect, then you can't be a priest. You cannot go into the Holy of Holies with the showbread. You cannot perform the sacrifices for the people. And that seems a little harsh. And you kind of wonder, okay, so why, why would God have that? Why would this be the words of God? And you can kind of understand why the people in Jew Jesus' day would arrive at these conclusions if that's what's being written in the Scriptures. But the point is this, that those Jewish priests are actually supposed to be like Christ. They are an example that pushes forward, that says this is what 
Christ was to be like because Christ is our what? High priest who has no blemish at all. And at the same time, he's our sacrifice. He's both the high priest and he's the sacrifice. And he has no blemish. And even then you can think that that's offensive. But there's a reason why he has no blemish. Why? Because he carries our blemish. He's spotless, the spotless lamb, so that he carries all of our spots, all of our blemishes, all the sin that we have. He had to be. And so what you have here is is God simply saying, you have to live a life that projects that of the Messiah. The problem is, is your Jewish culture would take that and say, well, obviously you have to be perfect to get close to God. You can kind of see how the human mind would drift that way anyway. So by the time Jesus gets here, that's what they're thinking. But it's fascinating to me because Jesus would arrive and he would turn this thinking around and he would do it in two ways. One, he would do it with his teaching and one, he would do it with the miracles that we talked about earlier in a previous lesson. If you look at John chapter nine, this is a great example. I love this chapter. I have probably preached on this chapter far too much, so please humor me. It says, as he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, he said, it was neither. So here's the teaching. It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day and night is coming when no one can work. But while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Remember, the miracles that he would perform are a glimpse. They are this light that he is talking about. Suddenly the room will get very bright. It will be very uncomfortable. But Jesus is about to show everyone this is how it ought to be. I quoted this last, last time, author Tim Keller says, the Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease or hunger or death. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming and you get a glimpse of it and so jesus would be drawn to the marginalized just like this blind man here in 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 john chapter 9 because what is he suffering from he's suffering from a blindness but not of his own sin and you look at the other people in your own circles who are suffering in some particular way what are they suffering from you know what it could be from their own choices i suffer from my own choices but you also live in a sin-soaked, cursed world. And unfortunately, in a cursed earth, which is the result of the fall of Adam and Eve, but really the fall of all of us, we're going to have defects and blemishes. And so you have Jesus being drawn closer and closer to this, but even creation is waiting for, the, for it to be righted, for it to find itself as it ought to be. In Romans chapter 8, it says, creation is waiting eagerly for that future day. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. 
But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Right? So why was he so benevolent? I, here's what happens. I think we look at Jesus' benevolence as though he's being nice. You've you got to change that. Here's the, here's the problem with that. If that's how you view what Jesus was doing with his benevolence, then what are we to do with that example? Put it in our own box. And that's what we do. We put it in our own box. This idea that, you know what, okay, well, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be giving, you know. I'll give a few bucks over here. You know what, I think I have time at the end of my workday. Um, in fact, why don't you call me? I just want to make sure, because if I do, yeah, I'll come help paint a fence, you know, or help somebody mow their grass or talk with somebody, right? It's almost like we put benevolence in this one sp space that's supposed to be almost an afterthought of what we are sent here to do, as if it doesn't matter as much as preaching the word. But I think what Jesus has shown over and over and over again is that he performs these these miracles and these acts of benevolence right alongside his teaching because people have to experience it. And so you find that in John chapter 9. What you find is that this, this blind man is sitting here and he says, I'm the light that's come into the world. And he has the blind man come over, right? And then he spits on the ground, which is kind of gross, you know, you know, and makes a little bit of mud and puts it on the guy's face. And he's like, all right, now, you know, go wash your face. And he's like, yeah, I can't wait to get this off, you know, right? And so he goes and he sends him, to, sends him to a pool. Well, in verse 8, it says the neighbors, those who had previously saw this man as a beggar, were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but it's, it's like him. But the man kept saying, no, I'm the one. So they, they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? Because when he washed all the mud off, he could see. And they can't believe it. They're like, it's the same guy? He goes, yeah, it's me, right? And they're like, well, what happened? So he goes through the entire story. Well, you know, this is what happened. He made some mud. I don't know where he got the water. It was slimy. You know, but now all of a sudden I can see. And so they're like, all right, well, this is kind of crazy. So we're going to take you to the authorities. Let's go to the Pharisees. Verse 16, therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God. This man Jesus is who they're referring to, is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Why are they saying that? Because as he tells this story, they're like, when, did, when, when were you healed? The Sabbath? Then he's obviously not from God because God declared you cannot work on the Sabbath, right? And so others were saying how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a great division among them. And so they asked the blind man again. They said, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he's like, well, you know, if I were to guess, I'd say he was a prophet. So they don't know what to do. They say, let's call his parents in. The parents are scared to death of the Pharisees. So they kick it right back to their kid. They're like, well, you know, he's got a mouth. He can speak. So you just go ask him. So they come back to him again. And they're like, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And he responds, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. I know nothing of who Jesus is. I don't even know what he looks like. I just know that I couldn't see, and now I can. And they said to him, well, what did he do to you? Did he open your eyes? And this is, this is great. This is when it gets really, really great. 
uh, and he said, I told you already. You didn't listen the first time. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you, do you want to be some? You want to be his disciples too? And of course, that's like, no way. And they're like, oh, we would never be his disciple. We are the disciples of who? Moses. And the man said, well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. And we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. And since the beginning of time, it's not ever been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, well, you were born entirely in sin. Why do you think you're teaching us? And they kick him out of the synagogue. But here's the best part. There's the most important part. Jesus heard that they put him out. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now listen to this. Most important verse of the entire chapter. The man answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now, why is that the most important part? Because he wants it. He got to see a flash of the world as it ought to be. He got to experience the kingdom of God for a moment, and he wants it. He doesn't know who Jesus is. That's why he says, how may I believe in him? He's longing for the kingdom, and Jesus says, you have both seen him, and he is the one who was talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him at that moment. The bottom line is this. When we find ourselves in the margins, when we find ourselves face-to-face with uncomfortable people, we have opportunity to show the kingdom of God. I get this weird feeling like we put Jesus' miracles over here as though that doesn't happen anymore. Hey, listen, that intensity of that, that flash of the world as it ought to be, it's not nearly as intense. Okay, I don't, I don't think we're going to see very many people raising others from the dead. But in terms of giving people a snapshot of what this world is supposed to look like, it's in your power. It's, it's part of who you are. I'm sick and tired of us thinking that benevolence belongs way over here or that it's not as important as sharing the gospel. Let me tell you something. You have to experience the gospel if you're going to listen to it. That's exactly what's happening here. And so when we talk about what it means to partner with different organizations, whether it's Jane Doe No More, whether it is Family Promise, whether it's helping with people with Apostello, or whether it's with Five for Nine Hope, We are not saying, hey, you should do some good things because you're a Christian. You should do nice things because Jesus did nice things for people. No, you are given opportunity. Listen, you are given opportunity to show people the world as it ought to be. That, coupled with the message of Jesus Christ, that changes lives for eternity. Jesus was with the people on the margins because of the opportunity it gave him. That's our opportunity as well, guys. Figure it out. It's your circle of life. Find out where your world is supposed to intersect with somebody else's. I'm going to introduce Don Evans up here. I'm going to ask him to share a little bit. Um, Sorry, Don, I got too passionate. I took away all your time. But uh, Don is with uh, Union Gospel Mission. He's also one of my good friends. 
He's very passionate about what he does, so uh, I just trust that you're going to pay close attention to him. Can I pray real quick? Yeah, Great absolutely. God, I love this man, so be with him. May your spirit stir within him, and may he speak your words. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is where I, I use my sorry line. If you call me bad name, hit me, punch me, do something worthy of sorry, you can use it. That man is an excellent speaker, isn't he? That means he's an excellent communicator, and he's teaching you and us to be excellent listeners. And I didn't come here with something all prepped and ready to speak about because I did sense the Lord was saying, I'm going to show you along the way, which fits right in. First thing I would say is that um, none of us are perfect. Been through two divorces, two bankruptcies. I've been in ministry most of my life and never figured I would do that. I could say, oh, I was divorced before I got saved. Didn't know any better. Got divorced when I was saved as a senior pastor. Now you're wondering about his scripture that says that the priests had to be perfect or they couldn't be used. They were defective. But you see what happens is, is that when Jesus touches the defective, it becomes clean. It becomes pure. It becomes usable in the hands of God Most High. So be encouraged because if we won't give up on Jesus, he never gives up on us. He's always there, even when we're down, even when we're depressed, even when we don't think we're good enough, even when we're listening to the world and the old tapes and we're walking in that rut, he's pulling us out of it, renewing us, showing us, empowering us, until we just get to the point that where all of creation groans for the eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, and that includes you women, us men, we got to deal with being the bride of Christ. You got to be deal with, deal with being called the sons of God. All of eager, yeah, all, all of creation is eager in groaning and eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That's not just in the end when all things are made new. That's about right now with all the power, all the authority that we have to walk through our life and change the world being history makers and world changers. So what I felt like, uh, first off, I want to say, yay, children's ministry, brother, because that's how I was called into ministry, sitting in the front of the church, watching the pastor speak and being inspired by a great speaker, and I hear the Lord saying, do you think you can do that? And of course, you know, I'm like, yeah, I can do that. Did you want to do that? Yeah, I, I want to do that. And then it's this long life of transformation and training and changing and trials and struggles and shaping and making you into the person that you're supposed to be. And we as Christians, when we go through that, aren't we crazy? We get to the other side and we're like, we wouldn't change nothing about it. That's when people that aren't believers go, whatever. You went through what? And I just shared a little bit of what I've been through. But Peter said it best. When Jesus gave them a hard word, you're going to eat my blood or eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they left, but the 12 stayed. And he said, will you leave me too? Peter said it best. Lord, you hold the words of life. Where can we go? The words of eternal life. What else can I do with it? So I heard this morning, the gentleman that was up here used the scripture of Jeremiah 29:11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord right? Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. We have that one memorized. I got that one in my house, right? But do you know what the first seven verses say? 
Because verse 7 says, seek the welfare of the city. Pray for it on the Lord, to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. In its shalom, you'll find your shalom. In its overall purpose and wholeness and prosperity, you will find your purpose and wholeness and prosperity. It doesn't make sense, though, because we grow up all about me. I love this cartoon that I have. I want to use it sometime, but I haven't been able to use it yet in the, our print stuff. And it's this picture of a fish, and it's a fish. It's just a fish, and, right? It's in the water, and below, it, you know, the lettering says fish. The next one to it, down below, it says selfish. Same fish, but it's thinking me, 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 me. You can't have a self-seeking attitude if you're going to seek the welfare of the city. And that's one of the reasons I love that man so much. He has a heart to seek the welfare of the city, to put self down and to seek others' benefit. And so all those dreams and desires, all that beyond all you can ask or imagine, beyond the reach of your prayers, beyond the reach of your desires, is going to happen, brother. Because it's happening for the mission, and that's your testimony too. Claiming it, receiving it. You guys are going somewhere because you have no agenda. Do you know if you read verses 1 through 7, just before you get to 7, right? I thought about reading it, but I didn't want to put you all to sleep. Because whenever you read it, you, you read those first six verses, you get the deer in the headlight look. Jeconiah and Jemiah and Shaphan and this person and that person. And, and the, but what it says is, is that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And then it went to the exile, and it was supposed to be for the exiles. But it says it went through first to Nebuchadnezzar, and then it was given to them. When I read that, Holy Spirit revealed to me, he said, you know why I did that? Why, Lord? Because, you know, it's boring reading those first six verses, and it, and it wears me out because all the different names. He says, because there can be no you and them, or no them and us. The word of the Lord came through Nebuchadnezzar, a Gentile, God's word, through the Gentile to the people. And then, verse 7 says, seek the welfare of the city. The city that I've exiled you to. Ever feel like you've been exiled to Missoula? I mean, I just, we just worked with a, a seller because we just got a building. And he's from Millings, and he's like, yeah, I don't know how you do it, living in the most liberal town in Montana. Exile. And how we do it is we serve the city, and the city has been opening up to us through 549 Hope, through the Wilmington Children's Center, through outreach. But see, it's because we're partnering with people. See, the training and equipping of the church is happening so that the work of the ministry can be done by those who are being trained and equipped to go out and do it. You can do it in your grocery store, at your gas station. You can do it everywhere because Jesus in you goes out to the defect and makes them clean, gives them hope, restores them. Thank you for the word this morning. Thank you for the word about miracles because, you know, when it says that the word came from God through others. I mean, you ever hear the word of God? You ever hear Jesus speaking to you through other people? Don't blow that off because he uses everybody and everything. He, has, he doesn't just own the, the cattle, the Christian cattle. He owns them all to finance everything, to do everything because it's all about him, for him, to him, through him, by him, all about him. In fact, if you want to see the miracle, I truly believe if you, there's only two reasons for this. If you get to a point where you're like, 
wow, J.D., I thought it was Wednesday and it's Sunday. And we do that, right? There's only two questions to ask when you're going, wow, what does that mean? Because you got lost in time. Am I too busy being under Satan's yoke? Or am I actually living the way the Father does as a miracle because he lives outside of time? Doesn't matter if it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Because I'm living in his time. Serving, losing track of my own personal agenda so I can be that for another. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. I really like that verse because you hear presidents say that a lot. Probably every administration's used it several times. Except I wish that they would teach them the two words. Love, agape, God-like love. Greater love is known than this, right? What did he do? He sent his son because he loved us to die for us. But that he lay down his life, that's not the word bios, it's it, physical life. It's not the word zoe. God doesn't want you to give up your, your God-breathed life. It's suke. It's the word we get psyche from. So what that actually says is greater God-like love has known than this that he will lay down his own agenda for another. That's what we're focused on in the mission. Great, huge doors are opening. The mission hadn't had a really good reputation with the mayor. You know, I can call the mayor up now and say, hey, I want to share something with you. I already did that. He said, come on, come into my office, and I'm going to share with him about the new building that we got. And I'm going to talk to him about the new things and how I can use it to serve him. We go and we serve the city. We have Broadway Island. We're under contract with Park and Rec, and our whole goal to keep it clean was to, I told them, I told the leader of Park and Rec one day, I said, the reason that we're here, because he didn't have language to talk with me. He's like, no one's ever done this before. He's just like, deer in the headlight, look, uh, now tell me why you're doing this again. I said, ultimately, so that you don't have any money that you can spend on cleaning that island. We're going to erase that line item through volunteering. See, that's seeking the welfare, right? So I challenge you to do that, whether you get involved in any of the nonprofits and organizations that JD brought up, because we're all together, the body, right? But it's about God calling you to a specific thing, whether it's 549 Hope, how we're, we're all bringing it together to build capacity to go and help people, to meet needs in real tangible ways, so that even if we use government money, come on now, if we use government money that's coming back from us to others, and it's kind of defined, you can only use it this way, but we end up getting people connected to it, and they use it, you know what always happens? They come back saying, praise God, thank you for the help. And you know what they're also telling us? How can I give back? Hey, I just needed that 50 bucks to get me through to my next paycheck. Can I give you that back? We're saying, nope, but what we're going to do is take your name and phone number and keep in contact with you, and we're going to find a way for you to volunteer and give back. Pretty soon what's going to happen is Acts chapter 6, verse 7, because prior to that, we added to the church. Added, I mean, I love God's word. 3,000 is addition. I don't add like that. Like 2 plus 2 is 4. Not 12 equals 3,000. Wait, it went 12 to 120 to 3,000. That's called exponential multiplication. In chapter 6, it says, now when the church was multiplying, so now we hear the first mention of multiplication. Then they said, hey, we are waiting on tables and it's taking all our time. We need to devote ourselves to prayer 
and the ministry of the Word. This is why J.D. is able to speak so well, because you afford him the time to seek the Lord and get into the Word. I, I didn't have a class. I actually had drama, CMR High School, Great Falls. My wife thinks I'm a little more dramatic because of it. She's like, does somebody need to put his big boy pants on? <laughs> so then what happened is, is that from that, you start to be able to speak, and you can't afford the pastor the time, okay? So they said, we don't have any more time. Choose from among you those who will do benevolence, and they needed to be qualified, filled with the Holy Spirit, men of good report. See, what saying, that's saying to you is, it's not saying you got a way out because I don't really have a good reputation. No, you got Christ in you. It means that there is no unworthy way of serving in the kingdom because those men that were qualified had to be qualified to just wait on tables. But what happened is, is verse 7, as soon as they laid hands on them and those people started ministering to the needs and released the pastoral staff to just answer, uh, to study the word, and we're answering the phones, finding the resource for the people, getting you all involved, it says, then the church in Jerusalem greatly multiplied. First time it says greatly multiplied, exponential multiplication. So we can talk about revival. You could talk about being the miracle, like J.D. said, where they get a glimpse because you laid hands on them or you met a need and you restored hope. But if we're not capable of continuing to sustain that, we won't see revival because if revival breaks out, the babies won't know how to get their needs met. Come on now. Because what we've done historically is just play spiritual chess with everybody and pawn them off onto the next church and the next church. Have you tried so-and-so? We don't have the money, but do you? So I'm telling you right now, you need to pick up these cards over here for 549 Hope, and you need to pray for us because three ladies in 10 months have handled 1,800 phone calls. We've helped 476 people, something like that. Uh, something amazing has happened. We also, we didn't know this would happen. Just by mediating with people and helping them find the answer within themselves or their support network of family and whatnot, they also, we've been able to record saving the community almost $50,000 because they had the answer. Or we helped them with 100 and they knew how to get the 500 then because they were at least like, I got I got 100 bucks toward this, and I can tell you more about that. But I want to close with this. If you're not planning on coming to our event on Tuesday next week called Project Hope, I would encourage you to do so. You can go to our website, and you can get free tickets. And if you're going, you better go, because I checked last night, and I think there's maybe 60 seats left out of 500. It is going to be something that inspires you, informs you, and gives you an opportunity to see what God's doing in the mission, which means the church at large, because we're connected with a multitude of churches, including Echo Church. Our guest speaker is Ron Hall. If anybody's ever seen the movie, same kind of different as me. If you haven't, go home, watch it tonight. It's on Netflix. And it is something that will change your life forever. Christian man meeting another man, coming together, changing and transforming true life story the town of Fort Worth, Texas. These two men, one has passed away since, they, they have record, uh, recorded, in, uh, written a book, first off, same kind of difference as me, and then the movie, bestseller, and they've raised $100 million plus for missions. This guy's a great speaker and he's fun, and it's a story that will change your life with regards to how can I have no agenda, lay down my own, 
suke and serve another so that I can see God use that to transform a nation, right? Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to be here in this church who obviously, just by the way that they sing, are seeking you wholeheartedly with a pastor that's leading them to seek the welfare of the city in the many ways that you can. Father, with the word says that in Revelation 12, 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Goes on to talk about not even uh, being concerned for their own life, but to just be used by you, live or die. But the two that I focus on is that Jesus has done the work here in this house, his blood and resurrection, cleansing and power to live that life free and also to be able to claim the testimony of what you've done in another person's life. So, God, as you have brought the mission, an incredible, amazing supernatural testimony of moving into a building that we've needed for years and years in our 20th year, Lord, I pray that same testimony upon this church, that there be a great outbreak of resource and finance and people and opportunity to serve others and to grow into the thing that you've called them into, but that it be authentic as they are going forward and reaching people, helping them, restoring hope and changing lives so that people will know the good news that they can have peace with God, that they can have power and life and freedom and wholeness through Jesus. And beyond all that, Lord, back to that scripture, to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory forever and ever. And that's what I pray, pressed down, shaken, and overflowing in this place, on these people, your people, leadership, servants' hearts, and that, God, you do it in a multiplied way so they can't even contain it. They'll just have to continue to give it away, give it away, give it away, because they're just getting more than they can hold. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.